are looking at a subject that Christ longs for us to understand and fully engage in, the subject of forgiveness. And I would say that life and our most thriving will come when we love and forgive like God loves and God forgives. Not easy. He empowers us to do so. Uh, and may the Lord grant us just that. While you're turning to Matthew, I'll turn over to Colossians because I want us to frame up the gospel and its summary expression that Paul gives us in that great passage. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 13 and 14, it says this, And you who were dead in your trespasses, fallen away, is what he's saying. Trespasses, we don't often use that word. Uh, maybe if you encroach on someone's property, either by choice or by accident, we would call you trespassing and what we're saying there is that you have gone off the path where you should be you're not supposed to be over here that's trespassing and in the same way Paul uses that term to say you who have gone off the path that God has given to you you who were dead in your trespasses now you might say well, why dead uh, trespasses are the sins in our life that we've gone our way rather than God's way and of course the wages of sin is Death. So he says, you who were once dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. In other words, the sin of your flesh had yet to be cut away. It, it, you're still engaging in that. You, you haven't cut that away. You're, you're fully engaged in the desires of the flesh rather than the spirit. And you were once that way, dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. But look what happened. God made alive together with him. So this is a movement of God in the life of somebody who recognizes their own trespasses and their own flesh and they seek God and God has been seeking them and God moves. It's God who's doing the acting in our salvation. Aren't we grateful that you and I are not in a religion where we're achieving some method of salvation? We're not in religion at all. We're in a relationship that God chose us to be in, and He acted upon us so that we could be in relationship with Him. The ones who were unholy now in relationship with the Holy God because He chose by His will to act on us, that He would rescue us from our trespasses and our spiritual death that we were in. So He made us together alive with Him having forgiven all, us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us. This is the great, great truth of the gospel, that not only are our sins forgiven, the payment required for all the sins committed, that payment, that debt required has been erased. So it's not just that we are forgiven, but all the consequences of life with trespass and sin has been removed by God's great mercy. That, of course, stood against us with its legal demands. What does that mean, the legal demands? Well, the legal demands of lawbreakers is that justice would be served. And God still demands that justice is served when we sin. You're going to see that in the parable that God gives us by His Son. We're going to see that justice is always required. It's not that God says, oh, Randy, you've lived your life of sin. Uh, just forget about it. No, he doesn't do that at all. In fact, he requires, because he's a just God, he requires that payment be made for the sin. What's amazing is this God of justice says, I will put myself forward as the payment for your sin. The one who knew no sin became sin for us that we might have the righteousness of God in him. So it's an amazing truth that transpiring here 
And, of course, all this comes about because he does this by nailing all of that to the cross. So anybody got an amen in you? Yeah, when we come to understand those truths, no matter how repetitive we speak about them, there's just something about us that says, God, thank you, let that be in me and let me live out the expression of that. So the Bible describes this sin as a great debt that is tallying all the days of our life except when Christ cancels that, when he erases that debt and he takes away the sin. Thankfully for us, God has stepped in. Now with that in mind, let me just frame up a definition, a working definition of forgiveness. I think it comes from that Colossians passage. That forgiveness is an act of the will to graciously release a person from any obligation to repay for a wrong committed. So you can see in that, that passage that God was acting in His will to be gracious towards us who had in, uh, brought infraction to the relationship, and He releases us from the obligation to repay it, all those things that we've committed against Him. Now what Jesus is going to tell us in Matthew 18 today, as you have received us from Him, you must also engage others in the same way. As you have been given forgiveness, you become the forgiver. And you're going to see that open up. It's, it's a, a truth that ought to be celebrated. And when we get it and we choose to walk in that truth, then our life is lived without the slavery to holding on to the hurts and the, the brokenness that people might have brought into our life. So forgiveness is not just something that we graciously receive. Forgiveness is something that God mandates from us. And you'll see this repetitively through the Bible. For instance, this is a passage out of Philippians chapter 4. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. So we talk about God's kindness to us, His tender-hearted towards us, uh, and His forgiveness towards us. But what God is saying is, as you have experienced that by me, You've received that from me. Now you go give that to other people. You be tenderhearted. You be loving. You be kind. You be generous. And you be forgiving to other people as you have experienced that. So forgiveness is giving up the right to hurt someone. You ever had that idea? I, I want to say something right now, and I intend it to be a barb. Or I want to do something right now, and I'm intending it to hurt. I'm going to act this way against you, be it silently in a manipulative way or forcefully. Archibald Hart says, forgiveness is giving up my right to hurt you. And I think he's on the mark there. Forgiveness is evident when we pursue kindness and tenderheartedness towards somebody. We forgive them, those who have sinned against us. Now listen, that doesn't mean that you have to put yourself over and over and over in a place of abuse. Remember the Lord Jesus, there were many times that the crowd would would move against him those religious uh, elites would move against him there's a couple of times that he he knew that it was not his time yet unto the glory of God so he either dissipated from them walked away from them and there's a couple of times that I'm thinking wow that's miraculous he just he just walked right out of that scenario when they were choosing to kill him right then and there now, all the while, Jesus is not going to allow himself to be put in that position of abuse when it wasn't the timing of God the Father yet, but he's forgiving along the way. And you see that when Jesus is on the cross, the very people who nail him to the cross, he forgives them. 
So when I'm mentioning to you it's the mandate of God that we forgive as we have been forgiven, I'm not mandating that you stay in a place where you are in constant abuse in a relationship with somebody. If your uh, co-worker is coming against you constantly, you don't have to put yourself in a place that you are constantly being barraged by him when, in his assault or whatever the case may be, but you do forgive, you do release him of any obligation that you might want him to have uh, in your life. And in that, we thrive. Listen, I know this, that my relationship with other people who I love and I forgive quickly, those relationships thrive. And if you want your life to be a thriving life, you have to love and you have to forgive. And isn't that what Christ is saying? Love because I loved you first. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love others. And now isn't he also saying, as you have been forgiven, forgive. So if you want your relationship, your marriage to thrive, then you have to press towards love and press towards forgiveness even when you don't feel like it. Love and forgiveness is not banked on feelings. It's based on God. Listen, if you're having a hard time forgiving somebody, if you're having a hard time loving somebody, that person is not your problem. Your problem is with God. It's the love of God that will fill your heart. It's the understanding of the depth of your sin when you recognize that in God's great mercy and grace to forgive you. When you recognize the fullness of God's forgiveness, you'll be generous to forgive. You're not holding anything against anybody. Because you recognize God has not held anything against you. And I can tell you, you've, you've sinned against God far more than an individual has sinned against you. And Jesus is about to open that up. He, he's going to put it right in our face and force us to deal with this. Listen, the reason why often we want to hold on to unforgiveness is because it's an onslaught of the enemy for you to hold forgiveness back. He knows that he can bring you down when you hold back forgiving somebody. You're not hurting the other person. You're hurting yourself. And the enemy knows that. That's the reason why he wants you to hold on to the hurt and the brokenness rather than forgive and release. Because he's out to destroy you. So I'm pleading you with the words of Jesus. Be loving and be forgiving regardless of what you feel about it. Press towards it because Christ has pressed towards you in the same way. Now today, today's passage, as I think that basis that we understand about the gospel helps us to understand this truth of Matthew 18, beginning of verse 21. And Peter came to him and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Now the rabbinic teaching of the day was like this. If somebody sins against you, forgive them. If they sin against you again, forgive them again. If they sin against you again, forgive them again. But if the fourth time, three strikes, you're out, there's no forgiveness in that. That was a rabbinical teaching. That was common in that day. I'll forgive you up to three times, but number four, boom, no more. So Peter obviously is understanding from the Lord's Sermon on the Mount that there is an expression of forgiveness that God gives to us that he requires us to give to other people. And it must be greater than three times. Because that Sermon on the Mount really hammers on forgiveness. So Peter comes to the Lord and says, first of all, Lord, how many times are these people going to keep sinning against me? And, and beyond that, Lord, how many times do I have to forgive them when they do? 
And he throws a number out there. It's not the rabbinical teaching of three. It's not the words of the rabbis. It's the greater expression. It's a seven. Now, Jesus is not going to give him a number. It looks like he is because he's going to say, no, I say to you 70, 77. But seven is the number of perfection. It's the number of completion. When you multiply that, what he's saying to Peter is, Peter, there is no number that you can ascribe to the point that you say, okay, I'm not going to forgive you anymore because God doesn't do that. God forgives and he keeps on forgiving. He has an amazing wealth of love and compassion and forgiveness towards us. There's not, listen, if it was 77 times, I would have outsinned God by my first birthday, no doubt. I would, have, I would have sinned way beyond the 77 that God's requiring in this. But it's not that. It's well beyond that. He's saying that I want you to forgive and keep on forgiving. And to help Peter to understand that, and us as well, he starts to share a story with him. He's saying that the story has some parallels to the kingdom of God. So he's saying, Peter, listen, you've been listening to the rabbis, but I want you to hear the nature of forgiveness in the kingdom of God. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. Now, obviously, the words of Jesus, we ought to really reach hold of those and grab them and live them. But I'm really intrigued anytime Jesus tells us about the kingdom of God and he tells it to us in a story. Because what he's helping us to discover is if you're thinking about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, in relationship to what you know about the kingdom of the world, you're going to get it wrong every time. If what you and I think about the kingdom of heaven is based on our experiences in this world, we're going to miss it. So Jesus says, let me put it to you in a story. The kingdom of heaven can be compared to this. There's a king who wants to settle his account. He desires to settle his accounts. Now, let me just say outright that that is something we all need to understand. There is coming a day in which the king of the universe is going to settle the accounts with every individual, every person who ever lived, who is living or will live in the future. There is coming a day of judgment where God will settle the account. Now, if you're thinking that God is going to say, oh, let me weigh this thing out. No, let me tell you what he's been doing. He has been accounting every infraction, every trespass, every sin, everything that you've done wrong and everything that you didn't do right. God is tabulating every bit of it. And on the day of judgment, all those records are going to be opened up. And it won't be let me decide. It's let me tell you about this. And he says that in that great day, that day of judgment, that all those who have rejected his mercy and grace in Jesus Christ, who have chosen to live their way rather than his way, who have chosen to be stubborn in their sin, all of those people are going to have to pay for that sin. And you know what the payment is? Forever separated from the holy God, from his presence in a literal place called hell, where there is a constant flame that is never quenched, where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. You say, well, Randy, you still preach in the 21st century that there's a real hell? You better believe I do, because there really is. And we need to engage people to understand that there is coming a day of judgment where everything is going to be held to account. And it's not just people who reject Jesus. You and I are going to sit before the Bema Seat of Christ, and everything done in this body, though it's saved, Everything done in this body is going to be tested. And all things that are done without the internal, eternal intentions of God and His kingdom, all those things are going to be burned away. They're nothing. And all that will be left will be like the gold, the silver, the precious metals of our life, 
where our intention has been to glorify Jesus, to pursue his kingdom and his word and choose to live a surrendered life. And in that, what's left is treasure. And that treasure is a reward for us for all eternity. What I'm here to say is God is going to bear account of every individual. The choice is going to be, will your account be unto your eternal spiritual death in hell or will it be unto the eternal glory of Jesus and the new heaven and the new earth? You make that choice today. You won't make the choice in the future in heaven. You'll make it today. Today's the day of salvation. This is the age of grace where God is offering that. And let me just remind you, God is going to be glorified in both people. God is going to be glorified with those who have received His grace, who have received His forgiveness. Do you, I don't know what angels look like, but I'm just assuming they look something like us. And I can just see them on that day. They are scratching their heads saying, I cannot believe that you're going to reward Randy Gunner for all eternity for those things. Did you not see all the sin? You know, the Bible says that they are mystified that God's mercy is given to us in the way that it is because they don't know that. All they know is that there was a group that sinned against God and rebelled against God and they were cast out. They don't know His mercy, but they see it in us. And they marvel at us that God extends His mercy to us and they, they give glory to God because of that. So God is going to receive glory from us and from them. And I pray that if you're around, that you'll see that and I'll see your moment where God is rewarding you and I will glorify Him as well. God is going to receive glory from those who receive grace. And God is going to receive glory for his justice that is served for those who have rejected him. The choice will be ours. Will we choose to give God glory in heaven or will we choose to give God glory in hell? And so when he says that the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who wished to settle his accounts, that's a big deal. And we need other people to understand that that's a big deal. He says in verse 23, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle his accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me. I will repay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii and seizing him, began choking him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will repay you. I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw that what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and when they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. The master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should, and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. Now listen to these words. And so also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Now, obviously, the story draws us in with its characters and narratives, doesn't it? As I'm reading that, I can envision that. I can see the 
discussions and I can see the attitude. I can see the expressions on the face. I can see the dismay of the fellow servants at what that guy did. But let us not lose the broad perspective by looking at the details. Because when we look at this aerial view of this parable, we'll get a summary. And when we get the summary, we'll get the direction for application. And it's this. With compassion, God forgives our sin, and with gratitude, we forgive all others, extending mercy to them as God extended it to us. Now, before the Lord begins the subject of forgiveness, he first begins to encounter why a person is in need of forgiveness, why why there's a need for mercy. We all need to recognize that we have fallen short of the glory of God. Every time one of us misses the mark, does something wrong against God or against others, we fail to do what's right, choosing to do what's wrong instead, then we add to that sin in our lives, and the mounting of that sin just keeps growing if it weren't for Christ Jesus. Let me just walk you through some of the points of this parable, and then we'll come to some conclusion for us individually. Every person has a sin debt that continues to grow, that is unpayable and unescapable by human means. I have a friend of mine that just says, oh, Randy, here you go again. You're talking about God's judgment. You're talking about sin. You're talking about a need for this and that. Let me just, he wants me to talk about grace and mercy and forgiveness all the time. Can I just put it out here that you don't understand grace and mercy unless you first understand sin and judgment? You can't get to mercy and grace unless you understand the depravity of the situation. You can't get to God's forgiveness until you understand that you have sin. So don't be alarmed to tell people that they walk in sin. Don't be alarmed to tell them that they're walking in rebellion to God. Don't be alarmed to tell them that there is a God who's going to hold them accountable to that and there's going to have to be a payment made. Don't be alarmed to do that. Listen, the enemy would love for you not to do that. If all you're going to do is talk about God's love and grace, you'll never hit the heart because they won't understand love and grace until they first understand their sin and the consequences of God's judgment coming upon them. But when we understand the depravity that we have, when we understand the magnitude of our sin, and then we get God's mercy and grace, my goodness, does it ever transform us to the point that we would be willing to give that to others because we recognize the darkness that God has released us from. So I say we ought to move towards this and help people to discover that there is an unpayable, unescapable growth of sin that comes into their lives. Now, the parable uses figures that maybe you and I don't use oftentimes, like talents. Talent is a measurement. It could be a measurement of money based on compensation for work done, or it could be a measurement of some precious metal. I'm going to use it this way in the in the parable for us today 10,000 talents would be equal to today's measure of gold to be 12 billion dollars so this guy has an just a fortune that he owes the king and he requires the king requires that it be paid now listen the king doesn't say ah don't worry about it in fact quite the opposite the king demands the payment He's settling the account. He demands payment, and he requires that the man pay, and the man can't pay. So you know what he does? He says, oh, you're going to prison. You and your wife and your children, I'm selling everything that you have. It's all going to be sold so that at least some measure of the payment's going to be mine. The judgment has already been set. The man falls on his knees, recognizing the plight that he's in. 
And the king in the narrative doesn't just give him more time, which is what he's looking for. The man's saying, just give me more time, I'll repay it. Just give me more time. You can't repay $12 billion, can you? Just give me more time. Isn't that the way people bargain with God today? Just give me more time, I'll, I'll stop doing that. Just give me more time and I'll start doing that. Just give me more time and I'll clean it up. My friends, it's like $12 billion, you can't do it. So recognizing that, that man falls on his knees and pleads for mercy. His mercy has been in the wrong direction, seeking in the wrong direction. Just give me more time. By the way, in parables, not every part of the parable is equal in the kingdom. Right? There's a big narrative that Christ is sharing to move to a point. In a parable, the points break apart where they're not meant to be expressed. So you don't gain salvation by working your way. This, this isn't the way it works. Your, your plea of salvation doesn't come, give me more time and I'll do better. But what we do see is a king who is merciful. A king who says, uh, this guy will never be able to pay $12 billion. I think I'll just wipe the slate clean. Fresh start. Now he goes out and he finds a friend of his or a business associate of his who owes him some denarii. Denarii is an increment of a day's pay. So he owes him some denarii, and he starts to choke him, wanting the payment. The guy can't pay, so he puts him in jail. Now, let me tell you how absolutely ridiculous this is. You and I have a hard time figuring out what $12 billion is like, so let me put it on a smaller ratio. If I had $1, the ratio would mean that $1.2 million would be in debt. So let's put it this way. I go to you individually, and somehow, some way, you've got a $1.2 million stashed away, and I ask for it, you give it to me, and you say, it, now, Randy, you're going to have to pay this back. And when the term of the loan is due, you come to me to settle the account, and I say to you, this is not an overstretch, I don't have $1.2 million. And you say to me, Randy, everything that you have is going to have to be sold. You're going to lose your house. You're going to lose your cards. Whatever you have in possession, you are going to lose that possession. And I drop to my knees and I plead with you, please don't do that to my family. Please don't take everything that they have. Please, I'm begging you. And you, out of compassion, say, okay, I'll let you go. And I'll wipe the debt clean. And then I walk down the road. And I see David who bummed a dollar from me last week because he needed a Coke. And he grabs a Coke with the dollar. And now my term is due. Hey, David, give me the dollar you owe me. And David says, I don't have the dollar. And I say, give me the dollar that you owe me or else. And he said, I don't have the dollar. So I take him to the municipal court, small claims court, and I sue him for the dollar. You say, Randy, that's, that's absolutely ridiculous. Who would be given freedom from $1.2 million in debt and go after somebody with a dollar debt against him? He says, ridiculous. And that's the moral of the story. That Jesus is saying, what a ridiculous notion that you and I would withhold forgiveness from anybody when God has lavished forgiveness upon us. It just doesn't make sense. So he's opening this treasure up to us to help us to discover the magnitude of forgiveness that God has given to us and the absurdity that we would receive that forgiveness from God and not extend 
that same forgiveness to somebody else. When it comes down to it, we have this. God, who is rich in mercy and full of compassion, offers forgiveness to those who turn from their sin and seek his mercy. So God will give this to us. He will give us forgiveness when we seek the mercy that we so longing need. Philip Yancey writes in his book, What's So Amazing About Grace? I know of only two alternatives to hypocrisy, perfection or honesty. When it comes down to it, none of us can live without sin. That's perfection. We may claim it, but we long deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. In recognizing this truth, our only alternative is honesty. And I'm telling you, like Yancey, when you and I get honest before God, then we will turn in repentance to Him. We'll turn away from our sin. So don't act like you've got it all together. You don't, and neither do I. If you say you have no sin, the truth is not in us. We lie, the Bible says. So with honesty, we turn to Christ and we tell Him that. And He, with love, gives us forgiveness. And He wipes away the debt of our sin that was held against us. And that is what He's saying. Act in that towards other people. Which moves me to this point. The forgiven, transformed by God's mercy and grace, becomes the forgiver. Now the reason why this is so important is because when our sins are forgiven, God's nature takes residence in us by His Spirit. And we then not only become the orators of the gospel, but we become the life expression of the gospel. So if you are communicating the gospel with your words, but you are unforgiving towards people with your actions, then you have discounted the gospel that you are trying to communicate. But when your actions, forgiving people, loving people, match the words, the gospel you're trying to explain, I'm telling you, your life and your words come with great power. So we want to engage people in this way. We want to tell them the gospel, and we want to live out the expressions of the gospel since the Holy Spirit of God dwells within us. And over time... We develop and we become more holy and more righteous, learning to express this new nature of Christ, loving people and forgiving them, increasingly so, as Christ is doing with us. And as we express that mercy and grace and forgiveness, God is glorified. His Son is most well known. Now, I know it may sound sharp, but in fear that I might dull the words, I've written them down. Being unwilling to be merciful and gracious is proof that a person has not received God's mercy and grace when they withhold it. Being unforgiving is proof that you have never been forgiven by God. Listen to the words the way others say it, like Lord Herbert, he who cannot forgive others breaks the bridge over which he himself must pass. Or Spurgeon said it this way, unless you have forgiven others, you read your own death warrant when you repeat the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our debts as we forgive those who have sinned against us. Or Greg Laurie, to be an unforgiving Christian is an oxymoron. So what Jesus is saying to us in this passage, the great challenge of this passage of Matthew 18 is, Fully receive God's mercy and grace 
and be fully empowered to forgive others as God has forgiven you. Now let's go back and just review one more time this definition, this working gospel definition of forgiveness. It is an act of the will to graciously release a person from any obligation to repay for a wrong committed. I think it would be ignorant of us to bless God for forgiving us by the act of His will. It would be ignorant for us to claim we receive that and not give it liberally to other people. Your willingness to forgive people is your acceptance of the forgiveness of God. And your willingness to love people only comes because God willfully fills your heart with love. It's exercised. What He gives to us, we give to others. And if you can't give it, if you can't thrive with love and forgiveness, your problem is with God who loves and forgives you. Let's let that settle into us. And let our prayer not be, Lord, may we be more disciplined to love and forgive, but may our prayer be, Lord, may we come to understand more the depth of your love and forgiveness towards us. And in understanding the depth of your love and forgiveness, God, let us exercise it to other people. And when we do, by our will, which is given to us by your Spirit, when we do, let it be another gospel reminder to us every single time. Oh, my friends, I want us to thrive. I want us to thrive in our families. I want us to thrive as a church. I want us to thrive in our workplaces, in the schools. I want us to thrive. But we can't thrive without love and forgiveness. And so God is telling us, if you're going to be in my kingdom, this is the way my kingdom works. Forgive. Forgive. Oh, may the Lord give us freedom in that truth. Let's pray together. Father, I'm somewhat taken aback by the insurmountable sin that's in me. It's a indebtedness, Lord, that I could in no way begin to repay. And yet, Lord, your mercy and your grace was extended to me. And in this room are many people who are just like me, just overwhelmed by the amount of sin that has been against you. And at the same point, overwhelmed by your mercy, your love, your grace. Oh, God, that you've lavished upon us your forgiveness. Trading out our sin for the righteousness of Jesus. Thank you, God, for that. Thank you for the love that has been exercised and demonstrated and received. Thank you, Lord, for that. Thank you that... We're able to walk and thrive in a relationship with you because of your love and your forgiveness towards us. You don't hold our sin against us. Now, Lord, in the same measure, you tell us to forgive other people, to love other people. So, Lord, beyond the emotions, beyond the circumstances, beyond the issues, 
we choose to press with your love and your mercy and your grace towards the people who have brought hurt and brokenness in our lives. Oh, sure, we might have our role to play in that, but Lord, we want to hold nothing. We want to hold nothing against a single person. We release them of an obligation. With your grace, Lord, that's possible. And in that grace, we'll walk with freedom, thriving again relationally with you and with other people. So help us, God, I pray. And in doing so, may we learn more about your gospel, more about your love and your personhood. Help us, Lord, to have those lessons. Who is it, my friends, in your life? Who is it that the Spirit of God would say, just let go of that? Just let go. It doesn't mean you had to put yourself back again into a place of abuse. Just let go. Forgive. See, I don't know how. I don't know if I can. Oh, trust God. His nature dwells within you if you're His. Trust Him. Ask Him to fill your heart with love and to help you to understand the magnitude of His forgiveness towards you. And then just move. Move towards that.